Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... I'm not quite sure about the, whether it's a cultural thing or whether it's an educational thing, but for whatever reason, a significant investment in a mixed-mode or a dual-mode building hasn't been utilised. On this week's episode, we look at some forward-thinking ideas and the challenges associated with turning them into reality. We look to Washington, D.C. and the ways in which they might try to revitalise their downtown core. We assess the autonomous vehicles of the future and the safety concerns that they have to overcome first. And we speak to the designer behind two London towers with futuristic features that never managed to maximise their potential. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. How can a master plan revitalise a downtown core? It's a subject on the top of every city planner's in-tray at the moment and one that we have spoken about at length on The Urbanist. But the reality is that office occupancy is down and CBDs are suffering. Aaron Chen is the founding principal and executive director of ODA Architecture. With more than 50 buildings under his belt in just over a decade, his work is hyper-focused on neighbourhoods and the public realm, and he's being called on to design master plans of every size and scale around his ideas of public space and the quality of life in cities. Aaron joined me earlier, not long after speaking at the Washington, D.C. Economic Partnership Forum, and I began by asking him about what topics he'd discussed there. First of all, I think that a lot of people recognize the hardship that downtown D.C. is going through right now, mostly due to the sort of ravishing COVID, mass exodus of, of office workers, uh, but also aging infrastructure. Some of the buildings, a uh, good percentage of them are older than 60 years old. And uh, the city is kind of puzzled because the vacancy rates are higher than they ever been which creates a huge impact on the public realm, on the retail or businesses, local businesses, but also on the overall livelihood of the city, and of course, safety and and other aspects as such. And in addition, the city is now experiencing a huge reduction in commercial taxes and real estate taxes because building owners reassess the value of their building based on on an empty building. So that creates a deficit of billions of dollars to the city in the next few years. So clearly there's some panic there. And, you know, while they're assessing different ways to address this, they reached out to me and and asked me if I could come up with some creative ways, uh, maybe some provocations, if you will, and share with the city agencies in a large scale some of our ideas. So that was sort of the background to the talk. Just before we dive into some of those potential solutions, you've raised the issue. So let's just go through a few facts. You know, I'm joining you on a day when there's a piece in the New York Times today looking at the the vacancy rate in New York for offices and just saying there's, I think, some 26 Empire State buildings worth of empty office space in Manhattan. There was a report last week in the Wall Street Journal saying in, in San Francisco, buildings that were worth hundreds of millions of dollars just a few years ago, now can't be sold for love nor money. And when you come to places like Washington, D.C., there's been reports about the 
the collapse of numbers of people going into the city. So they're in the void. Homelessness becomes entrenched and there's not the money to run good public services such as mobility. So a a real crisis going on. Do you think it's a hopeless situation or do you think that there is something that somebody like yourself can contribute to? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm an architect, so I am a positive thinker. And uh, I think for every great challenge, there's a great opportunity. And in fact, part of why I personally get so immersed and involved in this challenge, both in D.C., but also in New York City and other cities, is because I think there's an unprecedented opportunity for a positive evolution of those downtown cities. And that only happens in a dire situation where things seems like they're hopeless. But that requires a major change. And I, what I argue is that it requires a major perspective change and strategic change of how we look at those neighborhoods. But the opportunity is not only to recover those, some of those neighborhoods, but also to transform them to the needs of today and use that as an opportunity to address other issues that we're all concerned about in big cities like equality, like a shortage of housing and affordable housing, like shortage of public realm or the whole idea of density and quality of life. So to kind of answer your question, I am very positive, but I think it would take a lot of efforts and a lot of pain before we, we get to a solution. And definitely New York City, as you mentioned, and San Francisco and other major cities are puzzled uh, with the magnitude of the overlapping aspects that you described. It's the aging infrastructure, the fact that a lot of these business centers were designed as a single-use districts, which is the old way of thinking of urbanism. You know, there's a reduction in the amount of time people would spend at the office. It doesn't matter if, you know, there's a certain percentage that will come back, that there's still 30, 40, 50% reduction in the need of office space. All of these things together are really um, piling up to a major, major crisis. I think we, we now realize there's a problem. <laughs> but you're, as you said, you're a positive guy and you came up with some provocations. So give us one or two of the provocations that you thought that city leaders should be considering if they want to recharge their CBDs. So first of all, I would say that the common thought of fixing the problem with the buildings, the common thinking is let's try to find solutions for the buildings. And we hear ideas like, let's convert them into residential, let's uh, upscale the lobby, let's replace the facade, let's upgrade them to a more sustainable building. While all of these are definitely solutions, I argue that the solution needs to come from the public realm, meaning that first and foremost, we have to find a way to create a lively, attractive, engaging public realm at the street level. And if we do, That kind of excitement will bring value to the building above and the solutions are going to come. Because eventually, or essentially, every transformation of an old building, either by type, typology, from office to resi, to hospitality, to anything, requires an equity and financial investment. And my argument, my biggest argument is that it really depends on the excitement of its context. So to that end, I propose basically two major ideas. The first one is to find a formulation. By the way, D.C., New York, each city could find slightly different solutions. But in D.C., I basically propose to identify almost like a surgical master plan exercise. Identify those buildings that are just way too big and way too old in footprint, 
to be uh, converted into anything, and then propose areas by which we cut the building on the courtyard side or the alleyway, the service alleyway side, to expand those into wide open space, landscaped and hard space, public courtyards. So essentially taking uh, what's now just service alleyways and expand them by cutting those deep buildings into engaging uh, or at least uh, accessible public space, and then allow those developers to move that floor area to the top where there's more value. So that that's idea number one, what's what we call bulk transfer, but do it in a way that is very much tailored towards expansion of public realm and creating pockets of kind of urban interaction. The second idea has to do with the ground floor program. And because there's a lot of retail that has failed and it's very deep, what I proposed is to create an independent agency, city agency, where owners could exchange their ground floor retail again in return for a floor area at the top. That floor area that goes to this affordable agency would then be rented at a nominal or minimal cost to city resources in needs for space. For example, in D.C., we spoke to most of the, the universities surrounding downtown, Georgetown or George Washington University, and they're in dire need for space, for teaching space, for auditoriums, for event and art spaces. Museums around the D.C. Center are in need for space. They want to program affordable artist housing and artist studios that would be open to all, program uh, for the public, etc. So now that exchange of ground floor retail that allows the owners to build or to get the floor at the top becomes a source of public activity that caters to all, and that would be the seed that would then generate activity at the ground floor. And then through the, basically through the affordable retail program would also engage with more exciting local retail at the ground floor. So eventually that will create sort of an organic exchange that would bring livelihood and excitement to the public realm at those courtyards will then incentivize more developers to convert more buildings into other programs, et cetera. I guess my concern is, I wonder if you're describing a situation where you all of our cities, or many American cities, will lose their sense of what they had maybe 50 years ago or 100 years ago. They were places where you went to for spectacle, for grandeur, a sense of awe, a sense of place. Do you think that we just have to face the fact that our CBDs are just not going to go back to that sense of wonder that perhaps they used to have in the past? Well, on the contrary, I think that the diversity of program at the street level will, in fact, I think, enrich and alive the type of wonder that we might have lost because our neighborhoods have become so compartmentalized that you have business district, you have residential districts, you've got cultural districts. The mixed-use nature at the ground floor and above, I think, uh, brings much more wonder and more excitement on the pedestrian level. So when I say, you know, universities are going to capture some of that area, that would entail a cafeteria or a restaurant next to it, and then a gallery next to that, and then, you know, a flower shop, etc. So the evolution of a more affordable, more engaging, and more diverse retail, I think, would enhance the excitement. Aaron Chen there, and my thanks to him. Self-driving cars are poised to revolutionise the way in which we travel. 
offering a glimpse into a future where convenience and efficiency come together. But safety remains a concern due to the unpredictability of human drivers, cyclists, and pedestrians. The Great Exhibition Road Festival, taking place in London this June, lets the general public experience firsthand how the researchers at Imperial College London are trying to get around all of these problems. Monocle's Helmi Pillai went to the lab in South Kensington to find out more. Self-driving cars are often depicted as the future of transport, but there are still many problems that need to be fixed before people can comfortably sit in a robo-taxi and trust that it will get them safely to their destination. I spoke to Dr. Panias Angeloudis, who is head of the Transport Systems and Logistics Laboratory at Imperial College London. He showed me around the lab where his team is working hard to make safe autonomous vehicles a reality. Our particular interest in this lab is to look at how autonomous vehicles would be deployed in urban settings, where we have a myriad of different actors, different behaviors, different stimuli, different types of vehicles, different types of road designs. So our focus is to develop the algorithms that will allow the vehicles to operate successfully on those conditions. While in the UK, self-driving cars are not available for the public just yet, in some parts of the world, they're already out on the streets. Of course, autonomous vehicles exist. There are already a lot of field trials happening in London. If you hop on a plane to San Francisco, you can experience robotaxis that have been operating for years now. And in other parts of the UK, we have seen the launch of commercial services, bus services. I think it's in Edinburgh that was launched earlier this week, where we have an autonomous bus route that basically is open for business. Though many worry about the safety of self-driving cars, Dr. Angeloudis argues that their safety is constantly improving. They are very safe and the envelope of safety is progressing every day. So the good thing about all these vehicles is that they continuously collect information. So previous experiences, previous near misses or scenarios where the vehicles did not behave as well as the developers would have liked, will record all this data and they're feeding back into the development process and through continuous updates of the algorithms and of the sensing technologies that allow the vehicles to perceive the world around them. Self-driving cars could be seen as just another way to make life convenient for ordinary people. But as Dr. Angeloudis explains, the benefits of these technologies go far beyond that, such as by offering new opportunities for public transport in remote areas. There are many advantages, and the fact that they have already been deployed in industrial settings give us an indication of the advantages. So, for instance, in autonomous mining sites, there had already been a shortage of skilled drivers that would be able to operate those machinery. So these are dangerous conditions vehicles need to operate day in and day out. They also happen to be environments where the vehicles operate continuously, day in, day out, in hazardous conditions in remote areas. So these are areas, uh, situations where we might have trouble finding skilled people in order to operate those machines. Autonomy is a way to resolve these problems. We can also see that deployment in long-distance freight, where autonomous driving technologies might make the job of uh, long-distance driving easier. Also, there are opportunities around public transportation 
where autonomous vehicles could help expand the reach of public transport modes in suburban areas where it might be infeasible otherwise to provide scheduled services. So this is a stream of research and stream of work that is looked at by governments, by operators, so how we could use these technologies in order to provide public transport means in areas that it has been not possible to do so. Dr. Angeloudis's work is featured in the Great Exhibition Road Festival this June in London. As part of the Smart Machines Zone in the festival, people can engage with the tools used by him and his team in the autonomous vehicles research. I asked James Romero, Public Engagement Programs Manager at Imperial College London, how their researchers felt about sharing their work with the public. Hopefully it's really rewarding and maybe a little bit, <laughs> maybe for some it's a little bit scary initially, but I think they're amazing like they, they really buy into it into the concept of it and have fun with it and realize it's a festival so it's not an academic symposium they buy into the sort of fun engaging side of it i think which is really great and hopefully yeah hopefully they find it rewarding what we try by putting them sort of front and center we hope that not only did the audience get the benefit of getting a chance to speak to them but also that they get to hear the public's views and thoughts and, and maybe even concerns about some of the research that we do here at Imperial and they can sort of take that on board and it's a two-way benefit rather than just us telling the public this is the science we do and learn about it. It's a conversation can happen. For Monaco, I'm Helmi Pillai. Creating buildings that are actively contributing to a better planet has become essential to good city building. But often it isn't just the design stage which influences how eco-friendly a building might eventually be. London is just one major city that's been endeavouring to create a greener skyline for some time. The Strata, a residential block, completed in 2010, and the Gherkin, opened in 2004, both had features which promised to make a difference. The strata has wind turbines on its highest floor to carry some of its energy needs, and the Gherkin uses a variety of energy-saving methods to lower its consumption. One architect had a hand in designing both of these iconic buildings, and he spoke to Andy Jones about what he has learned from creating groundbreaking green technology for better and for worse. I'm Robin Partington. I'm an architect. My company is called APT. I've been very fortunate to have been responsible for a wide range of projects, both within the UK but also internationally, some of which you might know about. The Gherkin in the City of London, which I did whilst I was at Foster's, but also the American Air Museum at Duxford and the Armadillo in Glasgow, which is the Clyde Auditorium, which is a large conference venue in Glasgow. And I had a great time. It sounds like you have. And can you tell us a little bit about the Strata? Because anyone familiar with London has seen this proud building sat in the very centre of London with these turbines on it. Can you tell me a little bit about how the turbines got on there and the process of creating it? Part of the brief that came through from the local authority and through the consultation process was that people wanted something to make a statement. But you don't set out to design a building with attitude. This building is a home for close to a thousand people. And so it's important that you start with the client's brief, which is to create a place for people to live. But during the design stage of the strata, a green opportunity arrived that blew all other possibilities away. We work with some specialists in wind engineering and one of those chance conversations said, guys, do you realise you're building a very large sail 
you couldn't think of a better place to put a wind turbine if you want to generate energy, if you want to generate electricity, for example. Um, so it was uniquely placed to capture all of this wind and turn it into energy. But more than that, there was an opportunity to deliver about 8% of the energy load for a building. Well, that doesn't sound very much. But when you're looking at a thousand people living in a building, that's actually very significant, a very significant contribution. Robin and his team came up with a jet-powered plan which would harness the power of the natural elements. The wind engineer said, hang on a minute, if you're going to do that, do you realise that if you put a turbine inside a nacelle, rather like the jet engine on an aeroplane, when you look at the engine on, a, on the wing of an aeroplane, it sits inside a tube. And that tube that contains the blades makes the engine so much more efficient and more effective. Well, the same is true for a wind turbine. We could do that on the top of this building. So instead of having an additive approach where you put a lollipop on top, the turbines become an integral part of the design and the form of the building. However, the turbines were launched and then quickly stopped. So what happened? We've got this incredible possibility of having wind turbines, not just stuck on top of a building, but embedded in a building that can be an inspirational point for design across the world. I've certainly never seen wind turbines in many... No, no, this was, there are one or two examples, but this was a, a first. So what happened? Why didn't we see these magnificent turbines go round? The problem with gearboxes is they create noise. They create a thing called whine, which is where the gears, you can hear them. And there was a company in Germany called Enercon who had developed a gearboxless rotor. And so we said we can truncate the blades on the standard piece of kit and use the gearboxless rotors because they're very quiet. There's no whine that comes from them. Of course, the best laid plans of mice and men. During the tender process, it goes out, it's procured. And unfortunately, the turbines that were, were picked were from Norway, not from Germany. And they were the old technology rather than the new technology. And they were ones with a gearbox. And the gearbox, unfortunately, does make a noise. And so we said, okay, then at night time, we can feather them and turn them off. So you're not generating the 8%. It will be a significant proportion of probably two-thirds of that, still well worthwhile doing. Unfortunately, when the building was finished, the turbines were turned off, but never turned on again. And it's, I guess, in part, there's a whole host of reasons, but human nature is so much easier to wake up in the morning and not to have to bother with the turbines because you've got a busy day dealing with lifts and dealing with residents' queries about, has Amazon delivered my parcel? And the last thing you want to have to do is to turn them on and off again. And so it's unfortunate, but they've not really been used since the building was originally opened. So largely because of one choice in the procurement process and maybe a change of heart by the building's owners, the wind turbines at the Strata never really got going. Incredibly, a similar thing happened to another prestigious building Robin worked on in London, the Gherkin. One of the biggest office costs is regulating the temperature of the building air conditioning, heating, ensuring the constant flow of air through offices. But what if you created a building that was capable of breathing itself? The Gherkin has the ability to open all of its windows simultaneously at the touch of a button, self-regulating heat by opening and closing like a pine cone. If you've ever seen that building with the windows open, it's beautiful. It's like a prickly pine cone opening in the sunlight. So it's capable of breathing, which means that you can use natural ventilation for a significant proportion of the year. But I think I could challenge you. I would guess that you've never seen that building with the windows open looking like a prickly pine cone. And again, similar to the strata, 
it's because people are not using the system. It's not because the system doesn't work, it's because people are not using it. I love going on the roofs of buildings. And so you always look around and, yep, that's the building I did that one. And then you look and you think, hang on a minute, the turbines aren't turning. You know, today it's an ideal day for them to turn. And so I thought, oops, they've got a problem. And so I always try and go back and visit buildings when you finish them because you learn so much by talking to the people who occupy a building. You know, architects think that they're very clever and there are some very smart architects out there. But don't underestimate just how clever people can be. When you give them a building, they will use it in ways you never dreamt possible. And so I always go back and try and learn from that process. And when you see something not working, you try and find out, first of all, has the facilities manager got a problem? Can I help? You know, I know the building probably better than they do, so is there anything I can do to help? And then you go and you find out and you ask a few questions. You discover it's just somebody has turned them off. But on the rare occasions the technology has been used, the windows facility at the Gherkin and the wind turbines at the Strata are a sight worth seeing. When you see them working, they're just fantastic. I mean, I've been very fortunate to have been right at the top of the building when they were turned on. And obviously they didn't turn on all three, otherwise I'd have been swiped out of the building. But um, when you see something come to life, For the very first time, that's exciting. And it was exciting for the Strata, but it was also exciting for Swiss Re. To press that little button and watch all the windows open and then to go on a floor plate and just have fresh air blowing through an office floor plate. It's so unusual. In London, when you're sitting in in an office, you're so unaware of air movement because somebody has deemed it a while ago that if a piece of paper is moved on your desk by air movement, that's a bad thing to happen. So we've gone to a huge amount of trouble to make sure that there is no problem caused by air movement in in an office environment. When you actually have fresh air delivered and you do notice it, it's transformative. And you've created these incredible chess pieces on London's board, haven't you? The Gherkin, the Strata. You must feel tremendously proud when walking around to see these structures. Do you find it a little bit frustrating that some of the implements you've created, the pine cone heat facility in the Gherkin and the wind turbine in the Strata, isn't used? It's disappointing because you think your instant reaction is, I've failed. Somehow I have designed something that people don't know how to use and therefore they're not using it or doesn't work and therefore they're not using it. And the doesn't work one is more wounding because you've gone to so much effort working with some very talented people to make sure it does work. And so it's frustrating when people don't use it. But I guess the old adage of taking a horse to water, you can't force it to drink. You can design so many systems, but that doesn't mean people will use them. If people don't feel comfortable using a system, it won't get used. But this is different because I don't think the residents of the building as a collective potentially made that decision. I think that decision perhaps was made for them by the way that the building is operated and managed. Is it a little bit like a car designer who designs an incredible 4x4 that can go through 5 feet of snow up a mountain, through 3 feet of water, and then they see it being driven to the shops and back by people who would never experience that condition? (laughs) That's a lovely analogy, but exactly. You have so much potential in a designed solution of which only a very small fraction is ever used. And that's true in public transport. It's true in so many different factors and facets Mobile phones as well. People have a smartphone and they... Are you accusing me? My my mobile phone has got to be the most sophisticated piece of IT kit on the planet. And yet I still just press the answer and the call button. That's probably it. So why do buildings have these green facilities but not make the most of them? Robin argues that too many green buildings use systems which aren't passive, meaning the building manager has to maintain, update or turn them on and off again. But also, is the UK simply lagging behind Europe when it comes to applying technology 
in the maximum way. There is, a, there is a cultural difference between the UK and Europe and Germany in particular. Germany has always been a pioneer of green technology way before it became a popular or indeed a legal necessity and a legal requirement. People did it because they felt it was the right thing to do. But if you look in Germany, there aren't one or two or three mixed mode buildings. There are hundreds in all of the cities in Germany, whereas there are very, very few in the UK. I was very fortunate to work on two projects in Germany. One was the Commerce Bank headquarters in Frankfurt and the other was an insurance building for ARAG in Dusseldorf. Both of those have natural ventilation. Both of those are used beyond the way they were ever designed in, in that the windows are open all the time. Perversely, in London, the Gherkin doesn't do that. I'm not quite sure about the, whether it's a cultural thing or whether it's an educational thing. But for whatever reason, a significant investment in a mixed mode or a dual mode building hasn't been utilised. It could still do that. You could still go back and turn it back on again. And that building could still become far more sustainable, if you like, and energy conscious. The benefits are not just green. They can also improve life experiences for workers and for residents. When I talk to the facilities managers of the buildings that I've been responsible for in Europe, you understand some of the benefits, which are less tangible. You can't, I can't give you mathematics to sit behind it, but significant drops in sickness rates when you have the ability to breathe fresh air are very noticeable. And if you look at the cost of salaries with people being off work, that is a very significant benefit. Yeah, imagine you not catching the office cold. Correct. Indeed. There is probably somebody right now opening an energy bill in the strata wondering why on earth it can't be 10% cheaper or working slavishly in the gherkin and wondering why there couldn't be a nice breeze running through the building. Well, if I was paying for the electricity bill, I would be asking those questions. But once again, an individual in an apartment that has a thousand people living in that apartment has less of a voice, an occupier of an office building uh, where you have 6,000 people working in a building has less of a voice. But I think in a post-COVID world, and in particular with the problems we've had with energy costs recently, I think the collective conscience is going to have a stronger voice. And I think I'm always an optimist, but I think that voice could well change people's perceptions about how we specify buildings in the future, but more importantly, how we make the best possible use of the buildings that we already have. And that would include the strata, that would include the gherkin. Robin Partington there, speaking with Andy Jones. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast, get new episodes every week, and subscribe to Monocle magazine, and you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Classic Eye with Futuristic. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Now.